Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Well, Netflix has not only revolutionised the way in which we consume TV, but it has also transformed the traditional workplace culture. One of the key people responsible for developing Netflix's revolutionary culture was its former chief talent officer and best-selling author, Patty McCord. Patty joins me now to outline the key facets of this acclaimed workplace culture. But Patty, before we discuss Netflix, perhaps you might talk us through the earlier part of your career and the unconventional path that you followed. Well, I started out in technology because I lived here in California in the Bay Area as a recruiter. And it's a really important part of my past because recruiters don't obsess over retention. (laughs) Recruiters actually like when somebody leaves because it gives you another job to fill. And it was about marrying the right person with the right job. And I also kind of fell in love with technology and the people that do it and the people that use it. And so that's kind of a deep kernel of my philosophy, which is people have careers and they move on and, you know, each each place is a different adventure. And so there's nothing wrong with that. And of course, you played an integral role in shaping the culture at Netflix. What did that involve? You know, Reed and I, Reed Hastings, who's the CEO of Netflix, and I had done another company together before Netflix. And it was a company where we grew through merger and acquisition. And so when he asked me to join Netflix, it was, I didn't want to do it because I thought it was a dumb idea and I was consulting and I didn't really want to do another startup. But he said, let's make the company you always dreamed of. And I asked him, if we did that, how would you know that we had done it? And he said, oh, I'd walk in the door every day and want to solve these problems with these people. I'm like, well, that's that's compelling. He said, what about you? And I said, what if we were a great place to be from? And I meant like it looked cool on your resume that you were from Netflix. But it turns out that it was a really great philosophy to work from, which is constantly creating experiences that you're proud of, that if you walked away, you'd say, yeah, I want to put that on my CV. How did you describe the work culture in Netflix when you started and how did that evolve over time? Well, there's a a document that I'm sure lots of your listeners have seen in Ireland, which is called the Netflix Culture Deck. And it was a 172-page PowerPoint presentation that we wrote as an onboarding document to explain to new uh, employees when they joined the company what it was going to be like to work there. That document took 10 years to write. And so what we did was Reed and I would brainstorm it. We'd talk to the other executives about it. We'd roll it out with the rest of the company. And because it was a PowerPoint presentation, it was truly a living document. And so what's important to learn about our writing of that document was, A, writing things down really matters. It makes people think about it. It gives you a cornerstone to go to when you're wondering, you know, what, what should I do here? And the other thing is, it was open to revision. So we rewrote chunks of that year after year. I mean, and there were certain parts of it that took years to figure out. I mean, if we said we want talent density and we want, you know, great people in every single role and that we're going to be aware of when things change and be really honest with each other, ooh, I think it took us four or five years to just figure out the mechanics of that. So a lot of it was was not necessarily reinventing things or coming up with new ways of doing things. Honestly, most of the innovation I did at Netflix was just, I just stopped doing stuff that didn't matter. So, Paddy, in your opinion, is Netflix an atypical example of a modern work environment? 
Yeah, I think so. But I think there are plenty of principles and ideas that we use at Netflix that are applicable to everybody now, especially now. I mean, every time I would do a talk, especially in Europe, after my talk, somebody would come up and say, I love what you're doing. It's so inspiring. I really want to do it too, but I can't. I can't because we're an island. I can't because we're regulated. I can't because we're a different industry. I can't because I can't because I, can't. I mean, you know, I've heard it a million times. And now look at us working from home because you have no choice, but you could do it. You were always able to do it. You just didn't. Because I think we get complacent, and I think that we think, you know, like I just mentioned in my last response to you, the term best practices, that, that we get into this warm bath of if we're doing what everybody else is doing, we must be doing it right. And, you know, it's, that's not necessarily true. So now when I do a podcast and somebody says, who do you think is figuring out work from home, who's best practices, I'm like, who knows? And whatever, it's not going to be Google because we're going to realize that we're not Google or Facebook or, you know, we're all different individual companies and workplaces and we'll figure it out. And in terms of the culture at Netflix, you seem to have got that model right in terms of retention. What was the one thing that really made the difference in terms of retaining staff? You know, I, I have to be honest with you, retention was not high on my list of priorities or things that mattered. And it still isn't. Now, I've been gone eight years, but I still see Reed Hastings and folks from Netflix all the time. And what Netflix focuses on far more than retention is, do we have the right team to build the future that we want? Do we have the right team to, um, to embrace any uh, great opportunities that we have? I mean, when I talk to CEOs of companies now, I say, the last thing on earth you would want to have happen is a fabulous opportunity that you have to pass by because you've got the wrong team. So honestly, I just I don't think retention matters. I think that having great people who love what they do and accomplish a lot, I think that's what matters. Patty, you certainly brought a lot to Netflix, but what did you learn during your time there? Oh, I, you know, so much. I, uh, it was 14 years, and I look back at it as three different companies. The first one was the early, early stage startup till we come up with a business model before we ran out of money, and that took about four years. The second was DVD by mail. The third one was the birth of digital global streaming. So, I mean, I learned a lot about the business of each of those companies. I would say that by the time I got to Netflix, the most important thing I learned at that point in my career and that my best advice for everybody else is learn the business first because that's the most interesting part. And once you really understand how your business makes money or how the nonprofit works and who you serve or, you know, who your customer is and how you, you know, make that customer happy, then it's really interesting because then you apply your particular functions expertise into making a great business, into making a customer happy. Paddy, in 2018, yeah. your book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility, was published. The first chapter deals with motivating employees and contributing to their success. How, in your opinion, is that best achieved? By hiring amazing people to work with them. I mean, I, I think, I, I say sometimes, if you expect excellence, you, you might just get it. And if you expect mediocrity, mediocrity, that's precisely what you're going to get. So be surprised if you expect excellence, even for mediocre people. 
<laughs> so it's about really having people around you that are really smart and really capable and really love the problem that you're trying to solve. And I, I know that that's what makes people happy and that's what motivates them. I mean, I, when I wrote my book, it was at the height of the every company had to have a bartender on staff, right? What we had to do to have employee engagement was make people happy with swings and slides and, you know, all this <laughs> stuff. And the, and the truth is, so I would go to those companies and I would say to their chief happiness officer, literally, I met a lot of people with that title. I'd say, go find five people in the organization that are extraordinarily successful. It doesn't really matter title. People that everyone looks up to that goes, we wouldn't have made it without that person. They contributed so much. And ask each of them to tell you a story about what they did that mattered. And every single story will be about something hard because that's what motivates it. So, Patty, what was your formula for hiring great people? First adult. Um, but I would – so first, I just want to underline having adults matters a whole bunch. And by adults, I don't mean age because I know a lot of very mature 25-year-olds, and I know a lot of equally immature 45-year-olds. So <laughs> it's, about, it's about starting with the end in mind. It's about saying, what's the problem that we need to solve? What's our team success look like in a six- to 12-month period, maybe six months? And you say, what would it look like if we were amazing, in, you know, in six months? And then you write down all your numerals and all your metrics, and, you know, we'd be having more customers or we'd have more revenue or whatever it is. And then I say, make a movie of it. Are there more meetings? Are there less meetings? Are people working better cross-functionally? Are people reaching out to customers? What's occurring then differently than is occurring now? Then you drop down and say, okay, in order to do that in six months, would, would people need to know how to do? And maybe it is more customer outreach and everybody that you have doesn't have those skills, right? And then you drop down and say, what kind of skills and experience would it take for people to know how to do that in order to accomplish that in six months? And then you look at the team you have and the gaps are what you hire for. And so in those gaps, that's what you use to describe the problem that you're trying to solve, not describe the person you think will solve it. Now, I know that you're also a strong advocate for rigorous debate within the workplace. How should that be conducted? I miss it. You know, it's the thing I miss most about being in a company and being with other people. I love being proven wrong, <laughs> especially <laughs> about something I feel passionate about. As long as you're debating on behalf of the customer, you can, you're, you're, what you're debating is what's the best answer. Right, you're not debating whether I'm smarter than you or whether I'm better than you. I'm we're debating what's the best answer, and especially when you're innovating things, it's not always clear. So here's a way: if you're a leader, you can teach people how to do this better. Right? When somebody says, "Well, I think management made a really stupid call on that. I think that was a really dumb decision." And you want to respond by asking two questions, and the second one is most important. The first question is, huh, if you were in management, what decision would you have made? Second, more important question, if you are in management, what information would you want to have to make the best decision? And that's what debate is about, getting as much information out as you can to make the best decision. And when people are passionate about their perspective, they usually have a lot of information to back it up. And if they don't, then over time you learn, oh, this person, 
is passionate, but they don't have all their facts, right? So you can, it's drawing out from people why they feel that way and who they serve by figuring out how it's the right answer. So when I had lunch with Reed last week, and he can't, he can't stand it. He hates working remotely because he wants the energy in the room of a good debate. Remuneration is often the main reason mm-hmm. why an employee will stay with or leave a business. So what advice do you have for avoiding this obstacle? Well, you know, what we did at Netflix, which almost no one else is brave enough to do, is we paid very well. And the reason we paid very well was we had um, we had fewer people with higher salaries, and we didn't carry the people who were, you know, yesterday's star, tomorrow's not happy. If somebody gets an offer from another company at a much higher salary with much more uh, responsibility and uh, impact on the organization than you can give them, then they should go. That's a wonderful opportunity for them. And you should be able to have uh, the muscle and the pipeline in your organization to find somebody better if they leave. One of the stories I have in the book is there is a, a person that had been with us for, I don't know, like seven or eight years. And we hired him very young out of another company. Uh, and he's a great guy. And we loved him a lot. He's an individual contributor. And Google made him an offer at twice his salary. And his manager came and said, we've got to match this. We can't let him go. You know, he's really important. Nobody knows what he knows, blah, blah, blah. And I fell into traditional HR. Oh, no, we don't. We're not going out of the salary range. He doesn't deserve this. He only has eight years of experience. You know, he, he shouldn't do, Don't let the door hit him on the way out. So then his VP gets involved. And then Reed gets involved. And we're emailing back and forth all weekend. And I've, I'm like, no, 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 no. Sunday morning, I wake up and I thought, how many people in the world know how to do what he knows how to do? He's one of the original people that wrote our personalization algorithm. And then I thought, oh, my God, of course Google wants him. And I realized he's worth twice as much because he's been here. You know, I sat down with him and he said, I don't want to go. I love this job. But you you, you know, Patty, I've got a baby on the way and <laughs> twice as much money is a lot of money. And so I went back, so I sent out this email on Sunday morning to everybody, like, I was wrong. You know what, we could double the salaries of everybody on that team, and it would be nothing to the P&L. I can make it happen right away. And so everybody gets involved, like, no, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But then we had the real story, real conversation, the real debate that we needed to have, which was, are we cognizant of trapping people in our own compensation system? Patty, innovation is a word that has been overused in recent years, but it is critical that organisations adapt to change, particularly in the current pandemic. So what are the guidelines for not only making much-needed changes, but making them fast? Stop doing things that don't matter. Every, every time you stop doing something that doesn't matter, that gives you the most important currency in your company time. So every, everything that you do that gets in the way of having someone do what it is you're paying them to do, then you're costing the company time. And that time equals agility, and that equals speed, and that equals your ability to keep up. So I've been recommending to people right now during the pandemic that maybe at the end of every day, if you could jot down a sentence or two about what went well and what didn't go well, 
that day, right? Was it like, if I have another Zoom meeting, I swear I'm going to kill myself. Or I'm so tired of being the, the square of the 15 people in the Zoom meeting and only two people are talking, right? So, and then look at those, what you've written down over time and say, oh, there's a trend. We should do something about that. Patty, no matter how big or small a company is, it only takes one negative person to impact the culture. So what advice have you got for business owners in terms of how to address negativity within an organisation? Well, I'm going to answer that in a couple of different ways. If the culture is strong, that person won't be allowed by their peers to, you know, be the bad apple. (laughs) Two, uh, if you find one, get rid of them say goodbye, figure out a way to say goodbye. Three, more importantly, don't hire them. Remember the Google guy that wrote the treatise on the Google uh, website that was about um, how women couldn't be engineers because their brains weren't wired right, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so Google was debating what to do about him because Google has this culture of, you know, everybody's open, everybody matters. And so a journalist called me and said, would you have fired him? I said, oh, in a hot minute. <laughs> but I said, um, but I, I'm hoping I wouldn't have hired him because somebody that arrogant would have been that arrogant in an interview, right? I would have made sure there was a female on the interview team who would have come out and go, oh, not that guy. What are your top tips for business owners listening to this morning's program for creating a positive and productive work culture? My first tip is to teach everybody the business. Teach everybody how to read a P&L, a profit and loss statement. Teach everybody what the mechanics are and what matters to customers and how, how, what growth looks like and what are all the levers so that everybody in the business can say, oh, okay, I'm, let's see, I'm a customer service rep and my job is not to listen to complaining whining customer serve customers all day. My job is to make customers so happy that they tell somebody else to use our product for free, therefore contributing whatever you're marketing, $15 to the bottom line, right? So it's most important that you, you really have people understand what it is you do and how you make money on the user. The second thing is, Complete of transparency as you can possibly do in your business, right? Share information and assume people are, are adults and they're going to make wise decisions. Don't punish the many for the few, right? Assume that adults come to work, understand the business, want to make a contribution, and are going to make the right call. And then only worry about when they don't, when they don't. Well, if you've just tuned in, that was Patty McCord, the former chief talent officer with Netflix. And the insights which Patty has shared with us this morning will hopefully inspire our listeners to reinvigorate the culture within their businesses. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.